New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Zen priest and actor Peter Coyote gives us a concise description of Buddhism and the pursuit of enlightenment as the wisdom that transcends likes and dislikes. He also has conceived and conducted mask workshops that offer improvisational mask games as a way to see more clearly into a deeper wisdom available to us when we manage to put our small egoic mind on hold and get out of our own way beyond our normal attachments and habits. Woven throughout his newest book, The Lone Ranger and Tanto Meet Buddha, is a lighthearted parable of an overweight and out-of-work Lone Ranger and Tonto who meet Buddha and experience spiritual awakening. Today, we'll be exploring the practice of meditation and how it can assist us in catching a glimpse of who we truly are with our guest, Peter Coyote. Peter Coyote is an award-winning actor, author, director, screenwriter, and narrator who has worked with some of the world's most distinguished filmmakers. He's won several Emmys for his narration and was ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest in 2011. In 2015, he received transmission from his teacher, making him an independent Zen teacher. He's the author of several books, including The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, and a book of poetry, Tongue of a Crow. He's conceived mask workshops as tools to give us a reprieve from the repetitive weight of our normal attachments and habits. Join us for the next hours. We explore the everyday mask we use and the benefits of daily meditation with our guest, Peter Coyote. I'm speaking with Peter from his home by remote connection, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Justine. I'd love uh, to go, first of all, into um, why you started this creative idea to use the Lone Ranger and Tonto as a parable in your book. Well, you know, the book is sort of a little genre bastard. It doesn't fit anywhere. and. Um, there's nobody else but me that teaches mask workshops in quite this way, where I use acting improv exercises 
to kind of stress your idea of who you think you are. And when I do that for about half a morning and I put a mask on you and hold a mirror up in front of you, something happens and your personality migrates out and the mask gives you a new one, which you just understand holographically. It's just total. It's a mystery. It's never failed once in 40 years of doing these classes. And with the disappearance of your everyday self goes your everyday double thinking, self-criticism, self-consciousness, and sense of shame. So you're having a cold, sober experience of a kind of absolute freedom of getting in your own way. And then every student in the class will do this three times with three different masks, and they'll find three different, completely distinct personalities. And so I use this as a loss leader to explain Buddha's idea of no fixed self. Yes, we have an awareness, which we call our self, but it's not fixed. And when you say you know yourself, that just means you've got a narrative about who you are. But in fact, there's nothing solid in there. It's just an awareness. And so I point out to people that if they want to recapture the feeling of lightness and freedom, they need to learn how to meditate and they need to understand a Buddhist description of reality. So it was a lot of dry stuff reading about games that people were not doing. And I thought, I need an example. And for some reason, I thought about the Lone Ranger, who was the epitomal white man from the 50s, you know, entitled uh, on top of the game. And he had Tonto, his trusty sidekick, who was always the guy that I like. And tanto means stupid in Spanish. They never told us that. Anyway, so I imagine these two guys after their scriptwriter died and they're lost in the desert. They can't do anything on their own. They're not real people. So they're wandering around and they're getting older and fatter and the horses are lame. And they see this little guy camped under a, a cottonwood tree and they go over and he jumps up and he's such a perfect servant. He takes care of the horses. He wraps their legs in comfrey leaves. He grooms them. He hangs the saddlebags up to dry. That the Lone Ranger takes Tonto aside and he said, this guy must be the servant of a wealthy man. We're going to hang around here for a little, little while and maybe his owner will come back and we'll be able to get a loan or he might even want to invest in a movie. And of course, the Buddha sees right through this and little by little, he sucks them both in. Tonto has an idea of who he is. Tonto's not fooled. But the Lone Ranger thinks he's running the show. And little by little, the Buddha tricks them into building a treasure house for his master's treasure. It has to be made out of stone. And he gets them working. He gets them physically fit again. And little by little, each one has an enlightenment experience that changes them. And it's a kind of comic interlude, and it intersperses the chapters, which are just descriptions of exercises that people can do at home and ideas of like what the self is and isn't. And so it was a way to make it palatable, especially in Zoom settings, because it's much better when I teach in person. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Let's go back a little ways to when you were part of a street theater San Francisco Mime Group. And I think it was then that you first donned European historical mask 
called Pantaloon. Pantalone. Pantalone. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Okay, well, first of all, I need to tell you that mime is not pantomime. It's not like a white-faced guy pretending he's flying a kite. The San Francisco Mime Troupe was a radical street theater, and we used Commedia dell'arte, which was a 17th century Italian street theater, like Punch and Judy shows with adults. And a lot of them were masked because they were standard characters. Pantalone was an old miser. There was Dottori, who was a big blowhard. There was Arlecchino, the amorous servant. And then there was also the, the, the maid, who was the quickest-witted, smartest of everyone. And these were plays that poked fun at the rich and powerful. And we rewrote them to be appropriate for contemporary issues. And we performed them in the park. And we made our living passing the hat. So we had to be pretty good. And the first time I ever put on a mask as Pantalone, it was mind-blowing. Because I looked in the mirror and I got this guy. He was like an old, cranky Jewish uncle of mine. He was kind of fully human, but he was like mean-spirited. And he had every possible human foible. And I realized he just wiped... I was, my name was Peter Kohan then, and he just wiped me away. And I, instead of being a, like a well-behaved middle-class Jewish kid who was trying to be nice and polite, I had absolute freedom as this guy. And I never, I never got over it. It was like just an amazing magic trick. Every time I went on stage as this guy, I knew I could do anything and get away with it. And later, after studying Buddhism and teaching Buddhism in the monastery to the children of the priests, and then teaching classes to actors, I began to put the two things together. And I began to see that there was a way of giving people a short experience of something I called enlightenment light. And the fact that they were cold sober meant it was unavoidable. I mean, if I gave them a drug, they could always say, well, it was the drug, you know, and then they'd need the drug again. But this is something that they did on their own. And uh, consequently, it's it's impressive to people. And um, it's it's kind of won me over a lot of converts to this process. I know it did. And in reading about it, I just felt like there was something deeply revelatory about putting on a mask and trying on something new. And it kind of frees you up in some way to to start to explore, I think, that definition of ourselves becomes exploded, so to speak. Yeah. So the definition, the problem is, you know, we all have an ego. It's not a villain. It would never have survived evolution if it didn't, you know, save us from dinosaurs and teaches us to cross on the green and brush our teeth and take care of us. But the problem is, as life goes on, we begin to be told who we are by our parents. We begin to assume who we are by the way people treat us. We imply who we are. And after a while, that that sense gets so laden with the idea that it's a fixed thing like an armature inside a sculpture, that our freedom is diminished because 
we, we think, well, I don't do that or I don't do this. Well, the world is changing all the time. And if you're not changing with it, you're creating little prisons for yourself to be in. And the only thing that you can really make unchangeable is your intention. And so as Buddhists, we work on making our intention to be compassionate fixed with the force of a habit. And then we can improvise and not worry that we're going to be leaking envy or competition or jealousy or that kind of stuff. So once I understood that there was a kind of dialogue between Buddhist practice and acting practice and the states of mind that meditation would provide, I began developing this. I've been doing it for over 40 years, and I, I kind of know what I'm doing by now. That's great. That's great. And uh, these classes are available to people, are they, right now? Sort of. Uh, right now, I work about four or five times a year out of a very good uh, voiceover school in Sausalito called Voice Tracks. And the woman, Samantha Paris, teaches like I work, which is very intuitively. And I go into this class and I do master classes with the patients, with the patients. With the students, <laughs> excuse me, there's a Freudian slip. And um, I do that. And I used to run classes, but the, the pandemic has killed that. I'm now working on Zoom. And I've worked out a way to teach people how to use their cell phones to make masks. And that's pretty good. It's like an 85. It's not 100%. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that I'm hoping the book will do is that people could approach me to set up classes, and I can work with 12 or 15 people at a time. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Peter Coyote, and he is the author of The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Peter Coyote. He is the author of The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, as well as many other books. And Peter, I want to talk about language. There's something that you wrote about and that really got my attention, uh, that when language came in, it might have been what caused our expulsion from uh, the Garden of Eden. And so talk about how language is is okay. a shadow, or at least the shadow I, side of language. I know exactly what you want to say. The truth is that everything has a shadow. There's a famous Zen koan, which goes, which is called picking up a speck of dust. 
And the koan says, if you pick up a speck of dust, everything happens. If you don't pick up a speck of dust, nothing happens. What it means is picking up a speck of dust is doing anything, starting your radio show, building a Zen temple, building the world's best organic farm. But when you pick up the speck of dust, you pick up the entire world, and you don't get to do just the good things that you want. When you pick up the entire world, you get 50% bad stuff that you didn't want, and it's impossible to get just one or the other. You cannot pick up anything, in which case you just have to watch people suffer and watch the world go on as it is. But if you'd like to participate, then you pick up a speck of dust. But because you know you're picking the whole world up, it means you have to be recalibrating every day. You have to be looking at things new and saying, is this goal still working? Am I still aiming at the right target? So one of the things that happens when we use language for all its gifts, for all its, you know, the modern world that it's built, there are shadows because we tend to reify words. We tend to make objects of them. And we tend to confuse the word with the object. And yet a word can be used, the same word can be used by different people with completely different intention. Think about the way Fox News uses the word liberal and the way uh, Nancy Pelosi uses the word liberal, right? So the problem about words, let's say like a tree, you look at a tree and you go, got it. Trunk, leaves, fruit, roots, got it. But you don't have that tree. So it's very efficient to use words because it saves you. Oh, yeah, there's all these trees. I don't have to look at each and every one and feel them. And it's the same thing with people. At a certain point, you say, oh, yeah, I know Justine. And you've got Justine fixed in a photograph. And you're not going to let her get out of those parameters very easily. And so in that way, when we perceive only through language, it's kind of like living in a very complicated museum. At some point, you're going to know all the exhibits. At some point, you're going to be done with surprises. At some point, it's going to be like going through a world where you've already seen everything before. And when that happens, we either start lying to make it fresh and new again, or we get bored and depressed unless we have some practice by which we can slip the net of language, which is what meditation is. Going beyond language, it just reminds me that art and artists really kind of go beyond language. I mean, music, um, dance, uh, visual arts, paintings, even poetry, because poetry gives us images. That's right. Goes beyond language in some way. So what is the, the role of the artists in, okay. in our culture today? Well, let me let me start from the artist itself. Most people see the coloring book and they see the outlines and they're taught to, to color within the lines. Some people don't see that way. And those people are forced to create a means of communicating how they do see. So, you know, some people, so a musician or a painter or a poet is struggling to develop a medium that will explain how they perceive the world. And as such, you know, like you take a musician like Thelonious Monk, you know, I don't know what Bach would have made of Thelonious Monk, but for those of us growing up after World War II, 
in the world of bebop, it was completely appropriate to our experience. And yet before that, you know, popular culture was guys like Paul Anka. I mean, Perry Como, Bing Crosby. So as the zeitgeist changes, so does the perception and so does the, the means of expression by which artists try to express themselves. So to me, what artists actually do is they expand definitions of reality to include many more human possibilities than the ones we just receive. I, I agree with that. I just recently saw the documentary of the French artist J.R., and how he does um oh, the billboards kind of bill i mean yeah. huge yeah. huge uses the whole side of a building to display some image of some the people that he's representing i think well you know one of the things about the enlightenment the the european enlightenment that came up alongside the industrial revolution was the importance of the individual that was one of the contributions and that was one of the great secular pressures that began to work against the power of state religion, the power of, you know, Catholicism and Protestantism. So, yeah, when you see when you see a picture of somebody six stories tall, it really recalibrates your understanding of what a human being is and the possibilities of power, the possibilities of importance especially when they're people that the society kind of consigns to lesser roles. We're used to seeing pictures of Donald Trump that are blown up the size of buildings, but you're not so used to seeing like an old Armenian man or a, or a, a black man, a junk collector or something up at that scale. So there's something radical that alters our relationship to the individual by seeing that. You use the word uh, power, and that reminds me of something in your book where where I think it was Suzuki Roshi or someone had said, um, when asked about power, he said, don't use it. <laughs> and I'm just wondering about going back to the thought of meditation and what it's all about. And people are pursuing, uh, rather than kindness and compassion, we're we're pursuing enlightenment, you know, and we That's want a big to mistake. Yeah, it, well, tell us about that, please. So you know, in the Buddha's day, people were getting enlightened all the time. They weren't different people, because the Buddha was very clear. He taught people a way to kind of deal with their personal problems, the problems of being human, and he basically showed them that all the all the institutions of the state and the culture were oppressive to their liberty and that he was going to show them a door out and he did that and that door out was enlightenment that door out was to realize that you were produced generated by the energy of the universe you were absolutely on a par with every other creation of what we call emptiness or Buddha nature. So he taught you how to do this to enlist you in a huge, important drama, which is to save all beings from this ignorance. And he brought women into the original uh, Sangha, the original group, because he understood they had the same potential for enlightenment. He brought outcasts. He brought every kind of caste. I see you have Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, behind you. You know, so there's a perfect example 
what is caste but a mental construct that assigns unequal importance to different kind of people based on their color. And I think her genius is to realize that uh, American racism is less about race than it is about caste, that there's a lower caste and we treat uh, black people the same way lowest caste people are being treated in every other country and culture. And it's just a mental set. It's just an, a kind of ignorance that hurts us as well as it hurts the people that we define as less than us. So what meditation does is it kind of softens the parameters of your personality. It's like makes it something like a colander. And you start to realize it's not a firm boundary. We would not exist without oxygen, without sunlight, without water, without microbes in the soil nourishing our food, without pollinating insects, without birds controlling the pests, without grasses growing, without trees. So on the one hand, this self that we think of as very separate is not separate at all. And the image that I like to give people is imagine you were standing on a cliff and looking at a very choppy ocean, millions of little wavelets rising and falling, not big rollers. Well, every one of those waves could be a nameable thing in the universe. Could be a person, could be a dolphin, could be a mountain range, could be a feeling. It's all the same. It comes out of the vast formlessness of the ocean. That's what emptiness is. The vast formlessness of the ocean and it comes up into form for a while, and then it goes back to the ocean. And we call it, when it's in form, we call it living. And when it falls back to the ocean, we call it dying. But in fact, what the waves forget and what we forget is they've never not been part of the ocean. We have never not been part of the universe for 10 seconds. And so once you realize that, once you realize you have absolutely equal standing, with all of creation, you can't be diminished. I may not like the fact that Donald Trump is made of the same thing that I am, but it's an unavoidable uh, conclusion and it eradicates any idea of self-judgment. So all I can do is understand that he's a person, he's had different experiences that I have, try to understand them, try to protect myself from his behavior and other people from his behavior. But the idea that I'm better is like a piece of, you know, dog turd lording it over a piece of cat turd. I mean, we're just all made by the same thing. Great. <laughs> all right. So we're all made of the same thing. That doesn't mean that we negate being active in some way, though. Is that Not what? Not at all. No, no, no. I'm part of a movement called Engaged Buddhism. And one of the things that Buddhism, for most of its existence, it has been state-sponsored. There have been kings who accepted it and nourished it, but it was always under the control of the state. And when Buddhism served the state, it was supported by the state. So one of the things that we need to do is liberate Buddhism from state domination. And we also need to liberate it from medieval superstitions and, and beliefs, like there are still some people that don't recognize lay people and priests as equal. There are still some people that are following Hindu theories of reincarnation, which is something like the gift wrapping that Buddhism had to wrap around itself to be acceptable to, uh, to the Hindu superculture and the Brahmins that had all the power. But in 
In point of fact, Buddha's actual message was far more radical. We're all horizontal. And that our suffering comes from our running away from uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and impulses and not knowing how to contain them, not knowing how to transmute them. I'm here with Peter Coyote. He is the author of The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, as well as many other books. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, petercoyote.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Peter Coyote, actor and Zen priest, and we're talking about meditation. And there's some concept that is hard to grasp for many of us, and and it continues to be a little hard to grasp for me. Uh, The Buddhist talks about dependent origination. Yeah. Uh, Yikes. Sounds like a big word. Here it is. No apple tree. No apples. No sunlight, no apples. No water, no apple tree. No sunlight, no justine. No oxygen, no justine. You can even take it to the Earth's place in the solar system. If we were closer to the sun, water would burn off. We wouldn't be here. If we were farther away, it would freeze. We wouldn't be here. And the Earth is being held where it is by all the gravitational forces of the universe. So we are not separate from any of it. And this is one of the things that people fail to understand when they, when they think about uh, ecology and evolution. Listen to this. A squirrel has a little pouch in its stomach and it eats a mushroom in the forest. And that little pouch gets filled with bacteria. When the squirrel poops, its its poop is covered with that bacteria. And when a redwood seed sprouts, unless it touches a piece of squirrel poop and gets colonized by those bacteria, it can't digest the nutrients of the earth. So these gigantic trees are completely dependent on these little microbes. So anything we spray in the forest that is enough to kill these little microbes or kill the mushrooms ends redwood trees. So you know that our policymakers who are allowing us to dump garbage in the ocean and 100,000 chemicals into the atmosphere every year are not aware of any of this stuff. They're just not nuanced enough or smart enough. They're just thinking about business and what's good for business and what's not. But originally, not codependent, dependent origination means that it all comes into existence together. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's very helpful, Peter. You, you really kind of put it in a 
nutshell, I think a squirrel nutshell. <laughs> uh, but you also talk about meditation and daily meditation, and you you talk about it as equivalent. If we did 30 minutes of meditating every day, it was the equivalent. You you made a formula of three For me, and a it's half like hours an hour of sleep. Uh, or an hour sleep, all right, yeah. or three and a half hours of therapy. And you also uh, encourage us that meditation alone may not solve all of our problems, no matter how well we meditate. You suggest psychotherapy as well. Can you can you elaborate? Yeah. I mean, therapy is kind of like the compassion of the of the West. That's our system of, of helpfulness. And sometimes, because we've grown up in uh, a pretty crazy culture, pretty materialistic, pretty power-oriented, a lot of oppressed people who are responding with alcohol and drugs and violence, we have these threads that move through time. It's called karma. They're the consequences of actions and thoughts. And so sometimes they're really deeply embedded. And people who may have very... um, disturbed ideas of who they are or may have very uh, uh, obdurate habits and things they just can't shake, they're going to need some trained therapist to kind of help them see themselves more objectively and recognize their patterns. Because there are thoughts and feelings that we have that are too unbearable to accept. So, you know, I, when I, I was a heroin addict for a long time, And when I stopped, I had a doctor friend who prescribed me enough drugs to, uh, you know, get over the sickness and stuff like that. But, you know, I had a junkyard dog in my psyche that I'd been feeding red meat to for a long time. And when I stopped feeding him, he got pretty savage. And uh, one of the things that I did, even though I had begun studying Zen, is I interviewed about six therapists and I found one that I wanted to be like, that I admired. I worked with him for two years. He died. I started all over again and worked with another guy for two years, by which time I had four years of Zazen behind me. And the combination of the two got me off on a good footing. And then later I met another wonderful therapist that I used to see about once a month just to check in and make sure that I was still you know, upright and on the straight and narrow. I'm just thinking when you say um, you went to a therapist and you looked at several, I, I think it's really good for people to be careful about who they pick as a therapist because oh, yeah. say if you can say something about that. Well, one of the reasons I became a Zen student there were all these, you know, kind of nutbags around that declaring themselves as teachers and healers. And, you know, there was uh, the guy, Sri Rajneesh, and his 16, you know, Rolls Royces and poisoning the local town water. There was Bubba Free John, who knew who he was. Um, there were just lots of guys. But Zen had this long history. You couldn't teach until your teacher qualified you to teach. And I knew that it would not be perfect. You know, you can get jerks in any institution and any tradition, but I had some trust in it. I had some faith in it. And um, the same thing for an analyst. I mean, why should 
one one analyst I saw, I was telling him about my childhood, and he started crying. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I can't deal with this guy. I'm going to have to take care of him, you know. So I, I had to find, you know, a tough guy, but who seemed honest. And, and then I had luck later on in life to find a truly amazing therapist who was not so much of a Freudian. He was much more interactive. But by that time, I had a full life and I was on a good path. And I just needed a little course correction once in a while. So what you're saying, Peter, is like in Zen Buddhism, and there are many, many iterations of Buddhism. There's Tibetan Buddhism and Vipassana and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I could go through a lot. Uh, and and But you're saying whatever it is, Buddhism has a, I would describe it as a long tail, uh, that it's been around for a long time, and it's not really considered uh, in its true form, a religion. Uh, That's right. Can you say something about that? Sure. It's very important to understand that Buddha was an ordinary man. He was a prince. His father was a king of a the ruler of a Shakya tribe in Nepal, but he was a man and he became obsessed with the problem of suffering on earth and he dedicated himself to dealing with it. And he was the first person sort of on record who enlightened himself, who sat and worked his way through all the perceptions of being human and all the parts. And he was the one that coined this phrase of emptiness, meaning empty of a fixed self. It's not denying the existence of anything, but if there's no self, like an acorn tucked under your liver, what is it that gets reincarnated? In fact, we are like a little wavelet that's coming up. We exist for a while, then we go back to emptiness of the formless ocean, and we're recombinated. But it's not like our personality hops from body to body, because you never meet anybody that wasn't royalty or a prince or a great healer or teacher in the past. And that was just a way of kind of keeping the ego afloat, because the ego doesn't want to think of itself as impermanent. The ego thinks of itself as the most important thing on earth. But when you really understand that you're just like an empty bamboo tube, it's like you can let go of a whole lot of stuff. You don't have to worry about too much. So Buddhism is not a religion. When we, when we bow to Buddha, we are expressing gratitude for his teaching. We are not rever revering him as holy. Now, there are some cultures in which he is kind of elevated to the position of a god or magical. And as I'm fond of saying, the problem with Buddhism is that there's people in it. <laughs> and over time, like just like enlightenment, enlightenment was kind of a beginning for Buddha. Now, enlightenment is often imagined as something that's going to take you many, many lifetimes to accrue or other people have other definitions of it, and you have many sects of Buddhism, you know, so multiple flowers, multiple schools contend. But I like Zen because it was the least intellectual, least scholarly, most immediate. And um, when, you, when you choose a discipline, you have to stop flitting around. 
you can't do a little Zen and a little Vipassana and then a little palm leaf reading in India and then a little hugging with the guru. You have to, if you want depth, you have to commit. Otherwise, you're just kind of like a water strider. I really like that image. Otherwise, just striding across the surface yeah. of the water. And, I, you know, when I first um, encountered Buddhism myself, I was coming off of um, being a fundamentalist Christian. Uh-huh. And uh, my then late partner, Michael Toms, with whom I co-founded New Dimensions, he just threw me in the deep end of the pool Uh And we went to these Buddhist retreats and did meditation. And um, for me, I was kind of like the Lone Ranger in your book because I was saying, oh, what's this all about? And I was resisting and complaining and so forth. And I had this moment with the Lama, a, a personal connection, like we would have these moments in the retreat where we could ask a question just by ourselves, one-on-one with the Lama. And for me, I had this sincere question, well, what is meditation all about? And why, um, uh, I mean, I'm just able to try and stay awake for 45 minutes, you know, and he realized that the depth of my question was real and Mm -hmm. he reached over and he grabbed my hands and he transmitted the nature of mind well that probably lasted less than a half a second I mean who knows how long and it reminds me in in your book you talk about taking a helicopter ride and just going right over to the Grand Canyon but you don't have a pathway by doing it that way, you don't have a pathway to that Grand Canyon, so to speak. So for me, it's now been striding ever since towards uh, my own path to more um, awakened life, so to speak. Yeah, and it, it's right. it's like not <laughs> easy, you know. It's it's a it's a lifetime experience for me, at least. And um, I, I just want to remind our listeners once more, I'm here with Peter Coyote, and we're talking about meditation and and what it takes uh, to be truly awakened. Um, Peter Coyote is the author of many books, including The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Peter Coyote, actor and Zen priest, and we're talking about meditation. We've talked about Buddhism not as a religion, but it's a practice. And I'm thinking about the um, distinction between engaging one's thoughts and observing the mind. And is, is this partly what meditation is about? I think so. I think that's well said. So, look, most of the time, we believe everything we think. We identify with the train of thought that's going through our minds. And we we think that that's our self. And so we believe it. And when someone cuts us off in the car, we want to give them the finger or we want to shout on them or someone cuts in our place in line. And we never interrogate those, those feelings. But one of the things that meditating does is you dedicate a certain amount of your attention and awareness to a posture, to a mudra. You know, I don't know if you can see this, this mudra, which so you don't let that collapse. You don't let your thumbs separate. Our listeners are not seeing that. So you're saying you You put your dominant hand in your lap, palm up, and you put your non-dominant hand into it so that the middle, the knuckle on the middle finger rests in the other middle finger. And you make a soft, fat circle with your thumbs. And that's like your attention gauge. So your thumbs are touching one another. Yes, lightly enough for me to pull a dollar bill through them. And so if that circle collapses, it tells you that your attention is wavered. If your thumbs separate, it tells you. If you slump, if your posture slumps. And so you're sitting there and much of your awareness is tied up with sitting up straight, paying attention to your breath, leaving your nostrils, your attention gauge. And that's like sequestering a certain kind of energy that the mind can't run away with. So then when something happens, you can say, wow, I'm really angry. Look at that. What is that about? What about that narrative really got me really angry? What what, what was the key for me? And little by little, you do that for 20 or 30 years. You work out most of your narratives. What mommy did to me, what daddy did to me, what Uncle Charlie did to me. You look at them from this vantage point of not allowing your mind to run away and take you into those fantasies that are like, you know, if that guy ever says that to me again, I'm going to slap him into tomorrow. That son of a bitch, you know? So the meditation gives you a confidence in the strength of the body to perceive and the safety of that posture to perceive things you're normally blocked from consciousness. So if you think about it, The Buddha gave us four noble truths. He called them noble truths. So truth means, first of all, real. The very first one in Sanskrit that's translated as suffering, but the better word is affliction. And what it means is that all existence sits in a peppery wind. Just it's hard to be alive. And we're being assaulted by light, by heat, by various things that are coming up. It's not our fault. It's not neurotic. He tells you it's a noble truth. Noble means worthy of respect, means, you know, dignified. So the second thing that comes up when you're afflicted by stuff is called samudaya. 
and it means arising. So when you get afflicted, when somebody shouts at you, something arises in your mind. That's not your fault either. It just comes up. It's like when the fire is too hot, you move away from it. It's energy that moves us around in life. Now, the third one is called neuroda. And what it means is containment. And any peasant would have understood this. It's like a clay wall built around a fire pit that stops the ash and the fire from going and burning down the village or burning down the crops. And so within the safety of meditation and within the repeated habit of meditation, we learn that we can contain whatever comes up. And he's showing us how to live a life of humanity with dignity. Because there's nothing dignified about running to a bar and getting loaded. There's nothing dignified about cheating and having illicit affairs and lying to your wife and children or your husband and children. There's nothing dignified about shopping too much or gambling or drinking or whatever it may be. So the Buddha teaches you that you can, you can contain what comes up. And the last is called Marga, and it's the Eightfold Path. And he says, if you live this way, with right speech, right attention, right livelihood, you will not be generating negative karma. And you will be modeling the life of a Buddha on earth. Other people will see it, and you will be able to help them. That was his first teaching after his enlightenment. It was bone simple. It was affliction, arising, containment, and the eightfold path. And what he wanted to do was enlist people into this global vision of saving humanity from its fruitless efforts to run away from suffering and consequently create more suffering. Greed, attachment to property, attachment to status. So he let everyone in. All the taboos were not accepted. There were women, there were men, there were untouchables. There was everything. You know, as time goes on, People refine it, they emphasize different things, and you can, you can lose track. And what engaged Buddhism is, is looking at the world and saying, wait a minute, that guy doesn't have a bowl of rice. How is he going to meditate? That woman doesn't have food for her children. How is she going to meditate? These people are trying to overthrow our elections. What's going to happen to our citizens? This radio station is lying. This television station is not telling. So you realize that the, the world we live in, which is an expression of all these undignified, acquisitive, greedy, angry, and envious human impulses, we can model the life of a Buddha in it. And we can show people what it's like, how to live with dignity and beauty, and they copy us. And now there are millions of Buddhists in America. So I'm thinking also in this way of engaged Buddhism, what would you say about how can we then engage with the Four Noble Truths, which lead to the Eightfold Path, which you have mentioned, um, how can we engage in that by working rather than being overwhelmed, working with what is close to us and saying, that's a good and right thing to do? Good question. That's a really good question. So look, the first thing is when you learn to detach from your thoughts, you can just let the mind be the mind. 
I don't know if you know how to drive a stick shift car, but when you put the clutch in, you can race the engine all you want. Nothing happens. So when you're meditating, it's like the clutch is in and your mind can go wherever it wants, but your attention is on your posture, your mudra, your breathing, and gradually the mind slows down on its own. You can't stop it, but it will slow down because you're not feeding it impulses. So when you say to me, I'm overwhelmed by all this stuff that's going on, that means you're attaching to all the thoughts and worries in your mind. And they're just, you're just running like leaves blowing in the wind. So pick something that you can do. You can't, you can't fix global warming. I mean, I've got all, I drive a Tesla, which I charge with solar cells. I've got all LED cells. It's not enough. It's not nearly enough. So you do what you can. And one of the things that I can do is I can teach people the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And if they like the way that my life appears to them, and if they like the way that I appear, they might want to model that. And so you have to realize that we're not as omnipotent as we feel. I would rather make sandwiches for the homeless than give a speech to 10,000 people about homelessness or feeding the poor, because you can model making a sandwich. You see me making a sandwich, you can do it. You can take five sandwiches out every day and give them to people in your neighborhood. Okay. And if you do that, other people are going to see it. Or if you give blankets or old socks or warm clothes. So you have to kind of check into your intuitions, see what really moves you and realize how little you can do in a single life, but how much it can actually do also. When you think of a Martin Luther King, when you think of, uh, you know, people who have just been true to themselves and pursued a path without stopping. Yeah, well, there, there it is. You've really given it a wonderful overview and an encouragement for us to do something. And all those little somethings will become the ocean. I yeah, guess. suppose people went to church every day. And suppose going to church meant not just Sunday service, but on the other days they did one Christ-like thing, right? Just yeah. one every day. Maybe they don't judge the beggar at the corner. Maybe they give him some food. I've read the Bible three times. Christ never said he was the only son of God. Mm -hmm. We say that. Uh, and we say that in, in part because we don't want people to emulate Jesus. Jesus threw the moneylenders out of the temple. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And as long as he was an ordinary human, you could do what he does. Thank you so much, Peter, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. I've been with Peter Coyote. He is the author of several books, including The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, and his most recent book of poetry, Tongue of a Crow. If you want to know more about his work, go to his website, petercoyote.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3,749. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.